Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Tonight's scripture reading is going to be out of Mark 9, 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into the fire, and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered his house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, fun fact about me, I, uh, I really enjoy history. Like, I was that nerd in high school. Um, still kind of am about history. And I like reading uh, historical fiction. I like movies that describe real events, uh, like World War II. And I love biographies. And believe it or not, Rachel and I actually both really enjoy watching documentaries. It's just kind of a thing that we do. Uh, and I'm like, I'm on all accounts a history nerd. And it's just kind of the way I've always been. I like knowing how things work and how things came to be and how things unfold and how the human mind and, and heart work and, and all those things. And so uh, in high school, I, um, as we were learning, you know, I don't know how it is now. It's been like over a decade since I've been in high school. But, in, but when I was in high school, we, were, we learned a lot about global history and um, in American history. But I was always pretty fascinated with World War II. And as I was learning about World War II, and a question began to arise in my head that kind of took me a couple of years to get the answer to. And, and the question was, how did Hitler get so far without anyone stopping him early on? You know, I don't know if you've seen that, um, that Instagram, uh, that like prompt was like, name five things you could give a 30 minute presentation on without any preparation. 
this would be mine. Like I can talk about this for a long time, but I'm not gonna spend it all that because we still have the text to go through. But, but this is one of those five things for me. And a, and a, a lot of history classes, when they teach about World War II and they teach about Hitler and, and, the, and the war and Germany and, and, and the army coming, taking over uh, most of uh, Western, Eastern Europe, we just come to assume that the, all these death and destruction was kind of just a given. You know, some countries just didn't like each other and they got into this big fight and then millions of people died, which 75, it's 75 to 80 million people died in World War II, if you didn't know. But the question still is like, man, how, how did it get there? You see, Winston Churchill, who, who served as the British prime minister during World War II, calls World War II the most unnecessary war. Because as he explained it, there was never a war more easy to stop than World War II. Think about that for a second. 75 to 80 million people did not need to die. And the reason why is because the, the, the Western nations should have squashed Hitler and the German armies early on, but they decided to turn a blind eye to the reality that he broke treaties, he rose an army, he, uh, he was taking over these smaller countries. And, and, and do you know why they didn't ever stop him? It's because no one ever thought Hitler was much of a threat, which on this side of things, you realize that couldn't have been farther from the truth. And the reason I bring that up is because that same posture that the Americans and the, Western and, and the Western world had towards Hitler and the German army is the same posture I think many of us in the church hold towards the devil today. He's not that much of a threat. Or we can fall into the greater risk of, of not thinking about him at all. And the problem isn't that we're, as a people, obsessed with Satan, even though we have Halloween and Universal Horror Nights. Like, we're not obsessed with Satan. It, I think it's that we ignore him entirely is what our problem is. And we go about our lives oblivious to his daily assault on this world. There's this movie villain, and his quote is, is, is known throughout, throughout Hollywood history. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. But listen, we need to be awakened to the reality that as children of God, that we have an enemy that always seeks to destroy us at any cost. And that enemy is the devil. And so tonight we're gonna talk about the devil and we're gonna talk about how prayer impacts the work of the devil. Uh, another way of putting it, if you've been in church for a while, is we're gonna talk about spiritual warfare and the role of prayer. Now, if you've been with us for a couple of weeks or maybe a few months, you'll, you'll know that we've been in a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray. And you might be curious, uh, what does the devil have to do with prayer? You see, part of our goal in this series is, uh, is that we're gonna learn, and we're gonna learn to pray in a way like Jesus would pray that changes the world. And this, is part, and this message, this sermon tonight is part of that goal because here's the thing. Satan is actively working to destroy all of God's creation and Jesus calls us in response to pray. But I wanna make something abundantly clear to you. If you are here tonight and you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have given your life over to the Lordship of Jesus and you call yourself and know you are a child of God, you are in a spiritual battle. 
When you place your faith in Jesus, Colossians chapter one, verse 13 tells us that God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. And what this means for us to know tonight is that all of humanity, every single person, however many billion people there are in this world, every single one is in, is, is, exists in one of two places. They are either in the kingdom of darkness or they're in the kingdom of Jesus. There is no such thing as a neutral zone for any of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. No neutral zone for the Christian. C.S. Lewis writes that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And you are part of that reality. You see, now that you're in the kingdom of Jesus, Satan has not forgotten about you. It's not like, oh, he got away. Can't touch him now. No, no. You have a target on your back. First Peter chapter five, eight says, your adversary, meaning the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Even the language that Peter uses to talk about the devil and us shows that Satan doesn't look at you in some indifferent way. He knows and thinks you are his enemy and he wants to destroy you. So where does that leave us? You're like, I thought I was fine. It's like walking into a world star video. You're like, someone's gonna beat me up. I didn't even know. So Jesus' call for us in tonight's text is the call to pray. So let's see why this is Jesus' direction for us in spiritual warfare. Now, as noted, we are in Mark chapter nine, which is halfway through the gospel of Mark. Now I wanna give us some context because it, you know, it would be wrong of us to just try to jump into this without understanding the bigger picture of Mark. And so each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each tell the life of Jesus and each author has a particular flow in how they lay out the life of Jesus. So now every time we read a story about Jesus in the gospels, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, why did this gospel author include this story? Out of all the stories they could have told about Jesus, why did they include this story? And a way to find that out is by seeing what section that passage falls in. So now Mark, in Mark 9, falls in the section where Mark's goal is to reveal Jesus' mission, uh, his identity, and his kingdom. So now in, in the verses prior to our text, in Mark chapter nine, verses one through 13, Mark reveals Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? He's God. And he wants to make it clear. Mark is making it very clear. Jesus is more than just a rabbi. He's more than some cool dude with some chanclas. He's more than just a miracle worker. That Jesus is the God man, 100% God and 100% hum human. And that this God man has a mission and that he has a kingdom. And that's what we'll see tonight. So as we walk through the text, I want us to see four things. It'll be behind me. Humanity's desperate plea, Satan's agenda, the power and mission of Jesus, and finally prayer as warfare. So now Jesus now is revealed as God. And now this is how we begin the story. So Mark writes in verse 14, what does he say? And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So now there's a lot of they, thems, who's, what's. 
The they here is John, Jesus, James, and Peter. They had just come from the mountain. They had just seen some really cool things. They were like, oh my gosh, Jesus is God. Oh, it's crazy. He is God, right? So that's, they're having this moment. And you know, I think it's really funny because we, we kind of, I got into this little bit of an argument with, with Rachel earlier this week about like how old the disciples were. This is one of those moments where I'm gonna tell you, trust your pastor, not my wife. You know, uh, uh, most of them were teenagers, okay? Most of them were not adults. In fact, yeah, Jeff will back me up on this one. You can talk to Jeff Green. Raise your hand. Jeff will tell you, this is the man. Uh, uh, if you don't want to fight with me, Rachel, you can fight with Jeff. So, so the disciples are young men, 15, 16, 17, 18. And you know what young men do? They do dumb young men things, okay? And so I just imagine they're coming down the mountain and being like, I just saw Jesus transform into, wow! And, and John and James are, 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 John and James are brothers too. So they were like, bro, did you see that? He's like, bro, I did see that. And so they're having this conversation and Jesus is like, he's, you know, he's in his thirties. He's a little bit more wise. He's a patient with them. He's like, oh, how long will I have to be with these idiots? You know? And so he's walking with them. And they're coming in. And so the they that Mark is talking about is, is, is Jesus, John, James, and Peter. And as they approach this crowd, as they approach the disciples, notice who's the one who sees Jesus? If it, is it the disciples? Is it the scribes? Or is it the crowd? It's the crowd. Not the, not the disciples and not the scribes. And when the crowd comes to Jesus, it says that they are amazed. And when Mark says that the crowd is amazed, he means that they're excited. He's, they're curious. They're hopeful about what Jesus would do now that he was there. The crowds, you see the crowds, even though they, they, many of them were not actually followers of Jesus. Many of them were not disciples of Jesus. They were everyday people who had heard about Jesus, seen, seen things about Jesus and were like, I wanna, I'm just curious about this whole Jesus thing, who he is and what he does. And so these crowds had followed Jesus long enough to know, or at least have heard enough about him to know that when Jesus comes into a circumstance, anything is possible. And so they were amazed. And they're wondering, what would Jesus do next? So then Jesus then shifts the attention by asking the disciples as they're arguing, hey, what are you all arguing about? Now that word argue in the Greek means to argue, okay, there's a problem. All right, they have a problem and they couldn't find the solution. So they've turned to fighting on the reason why. And so, there, so Jesus is asking, what is the problem that y'all need a solution for? And before anybody can answer, this man comes out and he tells Jesus, Jesus, I have a son, I've came to you. I brought my son to you and my son is possessed. He's demonized. He has a demon dwelling within him. And that demon is making him mute, meaning that he cannot speak. And not only does, does, my, does this demon take away the ability of my son to speak, but that when it comes upon him, it takes hold of my son's body and it puts him through excruciating pain. And you can almost hear the desperation in the father's voice. Jesus, I came to you because I couldn't do anything for my son. And when I asked your disciples to help, they couldn't do anything. How would you feel if that was your circumstance? How desperate would you be? But you see this story this man's story is where every human story begins because you see every person before coming to Jesus is in the kingdom of darkness. Okay, every person outside of the kingdom and domain of Jesus is in the domain and kingdom of the devil. 
Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. And by saying that, Jesus is affirming that this creature, mind you, Satan is not God. He is not counter. See, many people in the church treat God and Satan as opposing forces. For that to be true would mean that, that Satan has the same power and authority as God does. And that's not what the case is. The case is that God reigns highly supreme and he created the devil. He did create Lucifer. And he is under the submission and authority of God. But nonetheless, Jesus affirms that in this world, the most powerful and influential creature is Satan. But look at what Satan does to his people. The people that he calls his servants, the people who are in his domain. Verse 17, 18 again. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. What does Satan do to his servants? He robs them and inflicts them with great pain. You see, the work of Satan runs rampant in our world today because we try to explain it all away. Our culture is convinced that the origin of true evil is you and me. It's just human stuff. It's just our stupidity. It's the dumb things that we do. It's not Satan. It's not some demon. It's not some supernatural evil. It's just that we're idiots and we need to grow up. That's what our culture tells us. But Jesus sees the true cause of evil in this world. John Mark Comer in this book right here, pretty. It's colorful. I like it. It's called Live No Lies. If, if there's any book I can suggest to you that's helped me kind of understand spiritual warfare in today's world, it is this book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer. I am not sponsored, but this is what he writes. For Jesus, the secular theories that attempt to explain evil as simply a lack of education, inadequate wealth redistribution, Marxist power analysis, or even the toxicity of religion gone bad, all fall short of explaining reality. The only way to make sense of evil in all its malevolence from large global systems of evil, such as systemic racism or economic colonialism, to much smaller human scale evil, such as our inability to stop our self-destructive drinking or hold back biting comments towards our friends, is to see and know an animating force behind it, adding fuel to the proverbial fire, dividing humanity against itself in a kind of societal suicide. The apostle Paul says it much more concisely in Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, that we do not fight and wrestle against flesh and blood, humans, but against the supernatural power of evil, the devil and his demons and his kingdom of darkness. And anytime that humanity goes into the ring with Satan, do you know what will happen? They will lose. That's why the father comes to Jesus because he recognizes that there is a power and force overcoming his son that he cannot overcome. And so he comes to Jesus because no matter how much he's tried and no matter how much he loves his son, he is powerless before the power of the devil. And so, but he hears about Jesus. He knows something about Jesus and he thinks maybe Jesus could be the answer. And Jesus says, I am. 
That's why he calls out, he calls out to the crowd. He says, what's the problem? He knows what the problem is. He knows the condition of man. He knows the, the, the plea and the need, the desperation of humanity. And he directs the problem to himself. He says, don't look at my disciples right now. Don't look at human needs. Don't look at human innovation. Look at me. What's the problem? Tell me. You see, by asking the people what the problem was, Jesus wasn't asking so that he could be informed of the situation. Jesus was informing the situation. He was telling them, listen, the God man has arrived. He wanted them to know that if Jesus was present in their circumstances, anything was possible, including freedom from Satan and his demons. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And if Jesus is God, which he is, this means that all things are possible for King Jesus. In every circumstance, no matter how big or how small you may think it is, Jesus says, direct the problem to me and watch the impossible become possible. This is who we serve. Now I want us to notice the nature of the father's problem, Satan's agenda. The father of the demonized boy reveals that this is more than just a physical problem. It's also a spiritual one. And then verse 20 confirms this. Look what happens, verse 20. And so Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, the demon that was in the boy, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. See, the reason why this spirit responds his way to Jesus is because this spirit is a demon. And demons are earthly powers or spirits that are allied with the, de with the devil, they are hostile to God and anyone connected to and with God, namely humanity. And demons take, see, demons take their cue from the head demon, the devil. Now, who is the devil? Now, the scriptures have many titles for this fallen angel. Um, the Satan is one of them. And you're like, I thought Satan was his name. No, actually, it's just a title. It's from the Hebrew, uh, Hasatan, which means the accuser. So, say, so the devil, which also the devil isn't his name. That's also a title, but he is the accuser. He is the evil one. He is the tempter. He is the destroyer. He is the deceiver. He is the great dragon who deceives. He is the ancient serpent who leads people astray. This is his MO. It's in his name title, in his job description. And the agenda for the devil and his demons is one thing. It's death. <clears throat> Sorry, sure brought water. <clears throat> cool. John Mark Comer says in the same book, uh, he writes, for Jesus, the devil is the archetype of a villain who is hell bent on destruction. He just wants to watch the world burn. His motto is tear it all down. Wherever he finds life, he tries to stamp it out. Thank you. Beauty, deface it. Love, corrupt it. Unity, fragment into a million pieces. Human flourishing, push it to the anarchy or tyranny. Either will do. His anti-life, pro-death, pro-chaos agenda is an insatiable fire. This is why our news feeds drip steady litanies of chaos and carnage. This is why secular theories of evil simply don't add up to a valid explanation of human behavior. And this is why following Jesus often feels like a war because it is. 
It's not easy to advance daily into the kingdom of God because there's opposition from the devil himself. Satan hates humanity. Have I made that clear? I'll say it again. He hates you. He has a personal vendetta. He has a, he has a poster of your face in his locker room and goes, I'm gonna kill this person today. I'm serious. <laughs> and he doesn't just hate Christians. He hates all humans because all humans carry the image of God. He looks at humans and sees even just a small piece of God and he just wants to snuff it out. This is why the boy in this story is being assaulted by this demon. You see, notice he's not being attacked by Satan because he's a follower of Jesus. He's been, he's been assaulted by this demon since childhood, before Jesus was even in the scene, before he even knew Jesus was on the scene. And Jesus says this about the devil in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief, meaning Satan, comes only to steal, steal kill, and destroy. And this is true in the time of Jesus. And this is what the devil is seeking to do today to you and to me and to all humanity. You see, can people still be demonized today? Yes. Does the devil inflict pain today like he did to this boy in Mark chapter nine? Yes. Does the devil use everything in his arsenal of evil to steal, kill, and destroy you? Yes. The reason we may not see it is because we act like he's not doing it so we don't go after him and after his evil works the same way the Western allies didn't go after Hitler. And we also don't go, we don't see it because the devil truthfully has gone a little bit more crafty. He's kind of shifted his game plan. Instead of attacking our bodies, he begins to attack our minds. This is the overwhelming uh, consensus from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes that we, as believers of Jesus, are to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, meaning Satan and his demons, and not according to Christ. Satan has waged war with humanity, and he's waging a war on the minds of this generation. Have you seen the dumpster fires that is our social media feeds? Have you seen how quick we are to dehumanize and devalue anyone who doesn't share our values? Have you seen how quick we are to play dress up and dress down with our identity and our sexuality? And we are so quick to medicate, to try and combat the cacophony of voices that yell at you that you are worthless and you are unlovable. He has brought bondage to this culture. And let me tell you, Christian, he wants to try to convince you that he can hold you two in bondage the same way that he held you, uh, held the boy in bondage in Mark chapter nine, but that's not true. See, Jesus will not stand for the works of the enemy. But before he even thinks about sending disciples out, Jesus is the one that confronts it face to face. See, listen how the the father finishes his plea. Read verse 22 with me. The second half says, this is the father's response to Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So he calls upon Jesus to help him and his son. But now interestingly, look what Jesus does in the next verses, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. So he challenges the father's faith here. Jesus, in a way, is calling for the man to reflect. You see, this word that he used for, faith, for, for believe is also the same Greek word that we translate faith and trust. So Jesus is calling him to say, hey, who have you placed your faith in to help you? See, what Jesus is trying to emphasize is not the quantity of your faith or of the man's faith, but it's the direction of that person's faith. See, Jesus says elsewhere in the, in the, in the gospels that the faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed, Okay, if you didn't know, the mustard seed is the smallest seed known to Jesus in the audience at, this time, at the time. But it has the power, the faith the size of a mustard seed has the power to move mountains. Why? It's not because of the quantity, but the direction of their faith, which is in Jesus, who is able to do anything. So then what does Jesus do? Read verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. That's a good old butt whipping. It's like, I never want to see your face at the bottom of these parts ever again. That's what Jesus said. You see, the emphasis is clear here that Jesus has authority over all things, physical and spiritual. Everything in and out, he has authority over. And the fact that Jesus, you see, you see, you could, you could, if you ever encounter a demon, if you ever encounter someone who's possessed with a demon and you try pulling that off, it ain't gonna work in your own authority. But you see, the fact that Jesus rebuked the demon and commanded the demon and the demon did what Jesus said to do shows that Jesus has ultimate and complete authority over all things. But it goes beyond that. You see, remember, Mark is revealing Jesus' identity, his mission, and his kingdom. Identity is who is he? God. He is God, right? So now we're talking about his mission and his kingdom. And so Jesus, the God-man, comes down from the mountain, injects himself into the scenario with, where there's a spiritual problem, knowing that Satan has inflicted harm upon God's creation. And what does he do? He kicks the demon out. This is all to reveal that Jesus came. Now hear me on this. Jesus came to wage war on the kingdom of darkness and to dethrone the devil as the prince of this world. Jesus has come to bind the strong man, that is Satan, and has come to set the captives free from the bondage of Satan. The mission of Jesus is this, it's to destroy the works of Satan. And what we see throughout all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, from the first page, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is this thing. Jesus has the power to destroy Satan. But when you look at the cross of Jesus and see that Jesus died and rose on the third day, you see that Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil. It isn't that he just has the power to, he did it. He defeated Satan. Now listen, if you are here tonight and you are not following Jesus and you're walking and you're not walking in the way of Jesus and in, in, in relationship with Jesus, let me tell you this. He knows your pain. He knows your circumstance. He knows the burden you carry 
by being in the kingdom of darkness. And he's inviting you into his kingdom of light today. Jesus's kingdom is the reversal of everything that the kingdom of Satan established. Where there is brokenness, Jesus brings wholeness. Where there is restlessness, Jesus brings peace. Where there is pain, Jesus brings comfort. Where there is death, Jesus brings life. Where there is affliction, Jesus brings protection. Where there are curses, Jesus brings blessings. Where there is bondage, Jesus promises everlasting and ever secure freedom. This is what he invites you into. Jesus is inviting you into his kingdom and is asking you the same thing he asks the father, the father of the demon-possessed boy. Who will you place your faith in today? Let me just tell you, today is the day of your salvation and Jesus has called you to turn away from the kingdom of Satan and to place your complete faith in Jesus. You don't have to live under the tyranny of Satan when you can become a son or daughter of King Jesus Almighty who would lay his life down for you so that you would have life and life in abundance. Now up to this point, we've come yet to talk about prayer. But that's ironically exactly how Jesus chooses to end the story. So after Jesus has done the miracles, the disciples are a little discouraged and confused. They couldn't understand why they couldn't do what Jesus did. And their confusion is warranted. You see, in Mark chapter three, verses 14 and 15, Mark writes that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, Jesus gives the 12 disciples, the same ones that we read about in Mark 9, Jesus gave them the authority to cast out demons. So why couldn't they do it? Verse 29 says this. This is Jesus' response. He said to them, this kind, meaning this type of demon, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, this cannot be done except, there's literally no other thing that can do what you're asking, but through prayer. You see, the disciples were tasked in joining, were tasked with joining in on the mission of Jesus. What is the mission of Jesus? To destroy the works of Satan. And what Jesus is helping them see is that their failure came because they tried to do it in their own power. See, prayer is intimacy with God. We made that super clear. If you were here during the first two weeks of our sermon series, if not, you can go listen to it on Spotify or podcast. It's easy. It's a good two, you know, it's a good lesson. You know, I preach long, but it's, I, it's worth it. It's um, prayer is intimacy. So we made that clear that prayer is intimacy, but prayer is also the complete dependence on the power of God. So the, the, the disciples, what they did, instead of placing their faith in God and Jesus in his power, they placed faith in themselves and not in the person of power of Jesus. I like how Pastor Chuck Lawless writes about this scene. He says, the disciples were banking on today's victory on the basis of yesterday's power. See, the, the, what the disciples needed was to be daily refreshed of the power of God because they were to daily attack the works of the devil. See, Jesus gave them authority in Mark 3, not apart from God, but their authority was from God and would only be effective in and under God. 
So Jesus really meant it when he says in John chapter 15, verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. And this is a warning to us today. As disciples of Jesus, you and me, because see, we have, now I just want you to hear this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given authority by Jesus to do the things that Jesus did. Jesus is our rabbi. He is our teacher. He is our Lord. Our goal is to do and say only what we see Jesus do or say. So if it is Jesus's mission to destroy the works of Satan, what is our mission? Destroy the works of Satan. I wonder if we can make a song out of it. I don't know, it seems weird, but that's our mission. But we cannot accomplish that mission without the presence and power of Jesus. Because apart from God, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We must be driven to our knees in deep dependence on the move of God because Satan will stop at nothing until death and destruction fill this world. And you and I on our own are powerless to stop him unless we are filled with the spirit of God. And I think sometimes we think that prayer is nothing more than wishful thinking, but prayer is warfare. Prayer is the means by which we prepare and engage in war with the devil. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks to the church at Ephesus about fighting against the devil. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. It might be behind me. Nope. I guess I didn't submit that. My bad. So here's what it says. Finally, be strong. He's on the, the, the church at Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our mission to fight against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we need the power of God's might because the power of darkness are stronger than you and me, but they are not stronger than God. And then Paul finishes this section. He goes to the armor of God. The, the, and if you've ever been in VBS or in Sunday school, you know, the, the helmet and the breastplate of righteousness. And, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm decked out for Jesus. Let's go to battle. You know, that's what, it, you know, but that's not, and, and it's kind of cute and it's kid-like, but it's real. It's real. And he finishes the section in verse 18 of chapter six. He says that we are to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. See, prayer is not an afterthought. It is part of our armor and it's part of our weaponry as followers of Jesus engaging in spiritual warfare in today's world. I love how my uh, a pastor friend of mine, Mike Doyle put it. He says this, in the armor of God in Ephesians 6, prayer is the heavy artillery by which we demolish strongholds. It's not a bullet, it's not a BB gun. It's not David's stone on a slingshot. It's the heavy duty, almighty gun, if you will, of Jesus to demolish the works of Satan. The main point of tonight's message is this, that the prayer, that prayer is the arena where we wage war 
against the works of Satan. So we are called into spiritual warfare in line with the mission of Jesus, not with fear and trembling of the enemy, but with complete confidence in the power and, and the power of Jesus. For Jesus has already won the battle with Satan. Colossians chapter two, verse 15 says that, is that at the cross, upon Jesus' resurrection, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities then put them to open shame by triumphing over, him, over them in him. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. And he showed us here in Mark 9, just a glimpse of what his power can do through, through his freeing the boy from demonic possession. And you see, what we have to know is that just as Jesus delivered the, the young boy from demonic oppression, Jesus will deliver anyone who places their faith in him from sin, death, and demonic powers into the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus has revealed into, in the text that the condition of the world, what the condition of the world is under the bondage of Satan. And there is a whole world out there, okay? I just need you to hear me on this. There's a whole world out there, outside the walls of Mosaic, okay? We, have, we come here, we worship Jesus, and, and we think this is the epitome, this is it. Listen, there's an entire world outside of these walls that, that literally, as we speak, are enslaved to the devil through sin and death. And Jesus is sending you and me to go out and set the captives free. We cannot afford to go unprepared then. We must pray against the works of the devil. We must pray to be filled with the power of God so that when we do encounter the works of the devil, we are able to demolish the strongholds. And then there are people here within this walls, within here, the, the community at Mosaic and adults. And, there, and, and some of you might be in other churches. And you listen, there are people here who are being attacked and oppressed by the devil right now, here and now as they speak. And, and, and they're trying to fight through the lies and deception of Satan. And our job and our responsibility is to come to their aid through prayer and presence so they're able to flourish within the kingdom of God. We are not left defenseless in all of this because Jesus calls us, because what Jesus calls us to requires him to be present with us. So knowing that Jesus is the one who ultimately delivers people into freedom and he's inviting us to partake in his work, what should we do? Here are some suggestions coming out of this place and out of this text. The first thing I would encourage you is when you pray, he does call us to pray, pray with intimacy in mind. You see, to do the work that Jesus has for us, we must be closely aligned with Jesus. Our authority in Jesus comes from us submitting to his authority. We have no power of our own. So if we want to be useful in the kingdom of God, let us take the time in prayer to be with Jesus. Second thing I would encourage you is pray for more of the power of God in your life. In being with Jesus, ask him for power. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you superhuman. You're not gonna start flying like Superman. This is a spiritual power and authority you're asking for. The power, and, now, and we think this and we just think, oh, we're just gonna be casting out demons left and right. Listen, the whole Christian walk, you need the power of God to do that. To love like Jesus, you need the power of Jesus. To speak like Jesus, you need 
to the power of Jesus, to preach like Jesus, to proclaim like Jesus. Like literally, the fact that, you know, I, I think sometimes you think I stand up here, you know, I open up my Bible and I think what's some really cool ways to get them stoked about Jesus. I can only do what I do as Caesar here before you in the power of Jesus. Otherwise, it's just another TED Talk. It's in the power of Jesus that we can be like Jesus. Thirdly, I would encourage you to pray for boldness. Satan will not go down without a fight. It will not be a field day. He will do what and anything he can to discourage you and harm you just as he did with the disciples in the book of Acts. And when, listen, when Satan rose up against, against the disciples, against the apostles, listen, wow, I'm losing it. When they did this, what do you think, what would you pray for? If you knew the army of Satan was at your door, what would you ask? Oh God, just make him go away. Or God, make me invisible so I can walk through this. Or God, just take care of it. That's not what the apostles asked for. They asked God to make them more bold. It was in their boldness that people saw the power of God. Fourthly, may we pray for people's salvation. If every person is either in the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of God, then we must be praying for people to come to Jesus because if they stay in the kingdom of Satan, all they will experience is death. But in Christ, there was fullness of life. When was the last time you prayed for someone to be saved? Have you ever thought, man, that maybe Jesus wants people to be saved too? and he uses your prayers to make it happen. And then fifthly and finally, pray against the works of the enemy. Pray against the lies of the enemy. Pray that people would be delivered. Pray that Satan and his works would be bound. Pray that his presence would be taken out and cast out. Pray that Satan would have no place in anywhere we go. Pray against everything and anything that doesn't resemble God and his kingdom. There's one quote I wanna leave you with. It's by Samuel Chadwick. Is that there? If not, I'm just gonna, there it is. It says, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our human wisdom, but trembles when the people of God pray. When the people of God pray, God shows up. And when God shows up, Satan has no other option but to flee. So may we leave this place eager to pray in greater dependence on the power of Jesus on behalf of those who are in the kingdom of darkness. Would we, as Mosaic young adults, be part of a move of God that would bring revival and redemption to the city of Orlando and beyond? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have imparted to us your truth. God, I pray that you would help us be more like Jesus.
that you, that, you would, that you would download your mission into our hearts, that we would be about what you are about, that we would be about what you desire, that God, you know our circumstances, you know the circumstance of this world, and you have sent Jesus on behalf of you to free the captives, and that, you, and that Jesus has invited us into that mission. We just thank you. Lord, I pray that you would help us be bold, that we would not be silent about the power of Jesus no matter how discouraged we might feel, no matter how incapable we might feel, that we know as long as Jesus is present in the circumstance, anything is possible. Lord, we love you. God, I, just, I pray just same way that the Father did in that moment. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I pray that we would become filled with your truth, that you would build up our faith. Your scriptures say that, Jesus, you're the author and perfecter and sustainer of our faith. So would you build up our faith, that we would walk in confidence, not in ourselves and in our own faith or in our own ability, but in you. Search us, Jesus. May we be amazed at your presence as the crowds were amazed. Got it. Jesus, help us see, help us, help us feel your presence right now. As you walk into the room and help us experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.